Welcome to the intersection of cybersecurity and intelligent automation panel discussion sponsored by KPMG. Here's today's moderator, Tom Temin. Welcome and thanks for joining us. My guests today are Leo Scanlon, Senior Advisor for Healthcare and Public Health Sector Cybersecurity in the CIO Office of Health and Human Services, Dr. Ray Latier, Chief of the Cybersecurity Division at the United States Marine Corps, and Tony Hubbard, a principal at KPMG. And it's good to have you all here, and we've really got a lot of ground to cover because cybersecurity is really everybody's business, and now we are in the post-WannaCry era, which seemed to add the whole idea of ransomware to everything else we've been worrying about, insider threats and so forth. So I think a good way to begin would be to, since we have a really major uh, civilian side agency and a really big military side agency, maybe just describe, first of all, the state status of your continuous monitoring and continuous diagnostics and mitigation programs, uh, which are ultimately designed to catch all this stuff, and give us how it looks right now and maybe what some of your plans are for the next 18 months or so. Why don't we start with you, Dr. Latier? Okay, great. Uh, Although I think um, last time I was even here with you before I talked about a particular program we have that's aligned with the Department of Defense's Comply to Connect. We've actually been making progress on that now. We have the contract let and uh, we're going to be doing some testing in the National Capital Region. What this is is that there's a particular network access control device that uh, is at every base, will be at every base. And then when a system plugs into the Ethernet port, that network access device will isolate it, put it into a virtual private network, scan it, find a problem, patch, remediate it, and then allow it only then to connect to the rest of the network. So even if it connected yesterday? Even if it connected mm -hmm. yesterday. In fact, once it's connected on, every hour it's pulsed mm -hmm. and made sure that if there's a new uh, patch has to come out, a new security technical implementation guide standard had to be implemented, it would get done automatically. The beautiful thing about this that I'm, I'm such a passionate uh, person for is that it reduces the amount of um, mindless labor that humans have to do. Instead of having some more, you know, marine or civilian run around with the disk all the time or try to run and do scans in, uh, uh, with the laptops on their own, this actually does it for them. And now we only take a look at the anomalies. What isn't being done? What hasn't been reached up? What hasn't connected to the network in a while? That means that the person can go actually do human analysis and, and really get in deep, hard problems and maybe get a better quality of work with them. It also means if I don't need 12 people doing it, I only need four, I can repurpose the others to do other things, give them other opportunities to, to work with it. And there's a lot to do in the cybersecurity field. It's been taking a while to get together. I mean, you and I were talking about before, and you wisely asked me a couple times, okay, you've told me about it, when is it gonna happen? It, and right, and I've been pushing and pushing, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm proud to say we've actually got the contract let. Uh, Marine Corps Systems Command is working on some of the de design aspects of it. Uh, the vendors are brought in. In fact, we're going to be uh, having a meeting on it next week to look at the standards of how it's going to be implemented for this test and uh, how we can move off from what we've learned when we did it a few years back at uh, Marine Corps uh, Camp Lejeune. So it sounds like the idea is it orchestrates a lot of steps that mm -hmm. used to be done mm -hmm. serially or mm -hmm. by people or by different machines. Exactly. And then you can take and expose that up uh, as you look for continuous monitoring. Now you can expose the data down to the system level. I can identify it by machine address code, IP address, and say, what's the status of that box at this time? And that now I can provide over to Mar uh, uh, Marine Corps uh, Mar Force Cyber Command, and they in turn can expose at the Cyber Command, I can expose to the DOD CIO, we can share with other services and organizations, so it, it gives us a transparency, so if something mm -hmm. like WannaCry happens again, we'd be able to say, well, we were able to push that, parts, that, micro, uh, that patch that uh, Microsoft gave us back in March, and look, we can validate it's been done, um, and, and such, it, it lowers the worry. Uh, of leadership, and at the same time, if we do have some anomalies out there, we'll catch them and we'll be able to remediate them. So and it's exciting. Does it work with mobile device? Or do you plan for mobile devices to be part of this yeah, pulsing? Actually, and that's a good. That's a good point because we're just now implementing a wireless instantiation across the entire Marine Corps. We've been kind of reluctant for that uh, uh, because of some areas where we are, where you know the the frequencies you have to work with certain national uh, agencies, you know, foreign countries with their uh, control of the frequency and the spectrum. But we're actually moving out on that to do exactly that part of how can I take and work with your phone? Uh, we've got to be very careful because anytime I take your phone as an individual, you want to connect and use our wireless, I got to make sure I don't hurt you. But with government furnished devices, absolutely. That's going to be part of the approach is how can I take and make sure that that one's maintained. We do it already with some of our BlackBerry devices. Uh, and as we move to other devices of Androids and iPhones that'll come down mm -hmm. the path, we'll be doing it the same way. Okay, interesting. And Leo at HHS, uh, I guess 
you're sort of a giant agency and a lot of small agencies, uh, CMS. What what does the uh, CDM program look like? CM program look like there? And what well, are some? I'll, of the things? I'll tell you the um, the small agencies are not that small. <laughs> it's a very large federated organization. Well, they're that, not shoe stores. No, that's for sure. And um, as you can imagine, the challenge of Im implementing a program like CDM program or continuous authorization risk management framework, all of which are part of a, a package mm -hmm. across a federated organization as large as HHS is very big. A couple of things that we've done and successes that we've had I think are very important. The most important success we've had was responding to the cyber sprint effort to get rid of passwords mm -hmm. and to go for two-factor authentication across mm -hmm. our access uh, control environment. Um, we are, we've achieved uh, essentially 100% on our immediate networks. We're moving to drive that into the system level and the admin level, and this is probably the most important single defense that you can do these days, and we've prioritized that and had great success with it. Following on, though, for, from the continuous standpoint, is that the um, cybersecurity is built into the work plan and the strategic work plan of the CIOs across the agencies. They have embraced it and built it into their individual operating divisions, and it is being done in the framework of the cybersecurity framework, the NIST cybersecurity framework, to provide continuous assessment of the maturity of these programs. And then the final bit is the continuous diagnostics and mitigation effort that's coming out of DHS. This is providing a standardized way for us to do the things that Ray was just describing, to put in mm -hmm. basic tools that will give us the core data that we need to understand what's on our network, what state is it in, and has it fallen out of nominal conditions on a continuous basis. This is allowing us to move away from the old model of compliance uh, cyclical reauthorization mm -hmm. and to give the CIOs and the CIO and the, the, the top leadership of the agency a continuous picture of the risk state that the agency is facing. At the same time, we have another challenge, and that is that we interact with the sector, with the healthcare sector, mm -hmm. which is the sector of the economy that is under the most heavy attack right now of any area, any sector of the economy. The attacks and successful attacks directed at the healthcare sector increased over a thousand percent in last year alone, and at the same time it is probably the most immature part of the economy in terms of um, embracing or understanding the challenges of cybersecurity for, for many different reasons. So we have a massive challenge that HHS is trying to step up to support of assisting the sector in understanding how to use things like the cybersecurity framework, NIST guidance, other uh, guidance that would build maturity into organizations that don't have the resources that we do in the government, that the military does, or that major corporations do, and 98% of the healthcare sector is unresourced. So th these are the two challenges that we're facing at HHS. They're very closely uh, intertwined, and the office of the CIO is making it uh, our business to provide the knowledge and experience that we have gained over years of working this problem and making that available to the rest of the sector and assisting in, in pulling this out mm -hmm. and, and building up the resilience of the sector as a whole. And for HHS, it's probably true that the uh, problem with the healthcare sector, the, all the providers and, and networks out there, is not just an academic problem for HHS. You're connected with them. You're, you're sending payments and information and data back and forth on a variety of fronts so that their, their bloodlines are really ultimately mixed in with, with the governments. We, we are, um, as I mentioned a little earlier, uh, CMS is processing over a million dollars a minute in Medicare Medicaid payments affecting over 50 million Americans. We are holding the life data of those citizens. We are holding everything down to some of their genomic data and it's in, in, in the custody of HHS. We are interacting with medical device manufacturers. FDA is every day working with the device manufacturers to assist driving security into the uh, into the devices themselves. So we're closely monitoring. We have a, we have a unique view of the sector and its pulse, a finger on its pulse, that we're trying to, as best we can, turn this into understanding guidance and risk assessment, both so that the White House, the Congress, and our oversight organizations can understand where the sector is, and so that we can work with the sector organizations, the large trade associations, the hospital groups, to find out where their real pain points are, help them identify their worst problem first, and then look for ways to leverage resources that move solutions into the, into the stream. Okay, good. And Tony, you have a government-wide view from uh, the consulting practice there in cyber at KPMG. Tell us what it looks like agencies are doing from that macro level. Right. Well, I think to follow on to what Ray and Leo talked about, uh, one of the key themes that, that through that entire discussion was the theme of fu good fundamentals and good hygiene around cybersecurity activities, just blocking and tackling fundamentals. And so we talked about password management being a key theme. We talked about monitoring, auditing being a key theme. 
third-party management being a key theme. And these are elements that I think many times folks get lost in when you hear about ransomware attacks and want to cry, and they think, oh, it's a technical issue. It's, it's, it really isn't so much a technical issue. I think Leo hit it right on. I mean, having dual-factor authentication is instrumental to help prevent those types of attacks. It's it, having good fundamentals around your, your patching of your devices, uh, making sure you have an inventory of where your high-value assets are, and making sure you have your networks and, and environments segmented to protect those assets and I think those are fundamental elements that oftentimes get get lost when you think about all the tremendous technologies that are out there and that's that's fantastic but you get a little lost sometimes in that the technology is not the silver bullet you know you got to have those basic fundamentals and uh, in place before I think you can move down a lot of these paths and Tony if you would let's talk a little bit about automating the risk management framework itself because a lot of agencies complain about what a manual and labor-intensive task that is sure so the risk management framework is certainly a very very important process as part of the agency's continuous mon monitoring efforts. But you're right, the challenge is it is very manual oriented. It's There's a lot of documentation involved. There's a lot of emails back and forth, email approvals and things like that. So it's important to have a, a workflow, an automated workflow or an automated engine to help facilitate that process. So it can kind of help the, the security documentation as it's prepared to be in an automated way move through one stage to the next stage. There's a six stage process in the RMF. So having that process automated as much as you possibly can is, is very important. And what are you seeing in terms of the threat vectors and the threat environment? Because we hear a lot that that is never static. Sure. It was, we'd have an easy job here. So what has changed? How did, what is, what does WannaCry and events like that represent in terms of how the threat environment as a whole is changing? Oh, it, it's certainly changing. Very dynamic. It's certainly, Leo and Ray are right in the middle of this in, in their roles. But if you, whether it's WannaCry or, or just this week, there was a new vulnerability announced through some cloud providers that had mm -hmm. some issues around some classified data getting out there and these are so the threat vector is constantly changing and I think it's it's very hard to keep up obviously and it goes back to a lot of the fundamentals we're, we're talking about specifically around cloud platforms is making sure you've got a good inventory of the data that you're sharing with your cloud providers so that I, th I think sometimes there's a perception that if we're outsourcing a, a an application or a system or a element of our environment to a, a provide third-party provider that it's their responsibility when in fact that's not the case it's still our responsibility to manage that and I think uh, that's certainly a key theme that I think will continue to bubble up. When you look at a lot of these attacks that have happened recently, OPM, Target, these were third-party provider types of issues so as more and more of our federal uh, critical infrastructure entities and federal agencies deploy more, more um, reliance on third parties, that's going to even become more more significant. Uh, you know, one of the initiatives out recently is uh, NIST has issued 800-171, which is a requirement for contractors to make sure they have the appropriate security controls in place. And that's going to be uh, hopefully very positive and instrumental in making sure that a lot of the third party providers have those controls in place. I do hear a lot more agency people these days citing the NIST publications, still the basic one, 800-53, but also 171 and a few others, it seems like they're almost a little later to the party in accepting the value of the 1,500 controls that NIST outlines almost than private industry was. It seems like you know they were like un unheralded in their own country, so to speak, uh, to use a metaphor, but now that seems to be changing a lot. Mm -hmm. well, yeah, there, there was issues that you had uh, various government organizations that wanted to have their own standard, and sometimes they did not align well with what NIST was doing. But uh, the strength of what NIST had and what uh, Dr. Ross had, had done on this is to put some science rigor behind it. Uh, I'm, I'm glad to say now that most of us in the government now really align to that well. Uh, but uh, the Marine Corps, we don't follow uh, NIST 853. We actually did CNSS 1253 because we have some Intel systems as well. So we made the watermark a little higher. Now some of our business system people are a little uncomfortable because they've got to do a little bit more work. They have some more controls to watch for. Uh, but uh, that kind of brings us up that everybody's at, at a persistent level. But it, it goes back to a common federal standard that we all have to follow. And how does the threat environment look to the government people? Leo? Well, um, and I I wanted to follow on your question there because it's an interesting thing about the history of how the NIST documentation came about. I'm a major partisan of that from day one. And uh, Ron Ross will be the first to tell you that if they could have done it by publishing the risk management framework first and mm -hmm. the control series
Series second, they would have done that. The Control Series kind of got kept people in a compliance mode, uh, sort of a checklist mode that was the old way, the familiar way of doing things. Mm -hmm. And it took a little while until the risk management framework documents got, got percolated through the government. But I think we've turned the corner. I think you're right that fundamentally at the federal level, we are, we're moving in this direction of risk management. So the, it's appropriate because the threat vector that um, we're talking about has become, WannaCry is a very good example, the single largest global cybersecurity attack to date with a velocity that has never been seen before. And this is the real challenge because risk management is about response. It's about resilience. What we see with WannaCry, and for those of us who've known this for some time, there is no way you are immune to these things. You are going to be attacked, mm -hmm. um, and it's going to be successful. The real challenge is resilience and response, and this is where the risk management framework is taking us. Um, we have technical challenges, and the, the healthcare sector uh, uh, Ray and I were talking earlier, very interesting parallel to the battlefield. Mm. We have to be careful that our security technologies do not inhibit the ability of the responder to deal with the heart attack or the soldier mm -hmm. to activate the weapon. These are life and death matters, and so we have a lot of technical research to do to bring our security technologies up to the challenges that are now in the forefront of these attacks. People believed for many years that there was no particular vulnerability to, say, a pacemaker, and you know, that's a good movie story, yeah. mm -hmm. but who's going to do it? It's a lot easier to just assassinate somebody, mm -hmm. let's get real. Well, WannaCry was not out to assassinate anybody, right. but it attacked medical devices all around the world, just because it did. Mm -hmm. So now we see, and I think this is the big wake-up call for all of us, that IT devices are vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Security has to be across the board, and it has to be continuous. So this is where the challenges are, are lying in the future. And if I may just kind of add on a little bit more of, uh, you know, tying into the Internet of Things and the healthcare devices and such, uh, what the, the approach for the risk management framework gave us is the ability to start to shape and um, modify and, and uh, adjust the controls. Rather than having the checklist construct that you only had, you had to follow all of these and then, of course, deforest Brazil to document something that you know, is very simple, you actually were able to say, well, this particular device only has three security controls. That's all I need to focus on and allows us now to monitor against that because we had a lot of people who are trying to say, how do I do this? How do I uh, do the evaluation? How do I meet the standard of compliance? And in many cases, they would either try to change the name, oh, this is not really a computer system, this is a weather system or something, so they would ignore it entirely, mm -hmm. or they would do all the extra paperwork, cost so much more money, and it didn't it needed to, when in fact they could tailor controls, identify it, have the analysis, be able to justify it, and then say, that's all I need to protect. I'm excited about what we're doing in the Internet of Things, particularly in the healthcare and aspects and ICS and SCADA, is that if we know what those control aspects are, we can actually get to them at the boundary on the network itself. Maybe now start to slow it down. You know, we're never going to stop it right, but at least if we can start slowing it down, get alarms, and start to see it, uh, impact that kill chain a little bit, I think we're going to be a little bit better in, in, the, in the long run. So really the, the criterion is if it has an IP address, then it comes under the umbrella of all of this. Seriously, if it's hardware, software, with an operating system, uh, you know, firmware, and then an application on it, that's where it goes into. And if, if we read what the, uh, the current executive order came out, we saw signed up by the president, change the definition of IT. Because mm -hmm. if we take a look at what was back in, in uh, Title 40 and Title 44, IT is a very specific office right. automation construct. But what was added on this executive order was the operational technology determinations. It's also these capabilities that would do a physical function or capability, which ties into what we're doing for you know for water control systems and heating systems and such. So I think what they're trying to do is get us to focus on it all. That's got a lot of people panicking because for many years, as I said, they tried to ignore it. They, they said, I call it something else, and now they're being pulled in that they have to identify it, and, and they need to. My guests today are Leo Scanlon, Senior Advisor for Healthcare and Public Health Sector Cybersecurity in the CIO Office at Health and Human Services, Dr. Ray Latier, Chief of the Cybersecurity Division at the Marine Corps, and Tony Hubbard, a principal at KPMG. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. This discussion is entitled, The Intersection of Cybersecurity and Intelligent Automation, sponsored by KPMG, here on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. Hi, I'm Tony Hubbard, KPMG's Federal Cybersecurity Practice Lead. We recognize that the federal cybersecurity requirements can be overwhelming, and tracking these requirements while augmenting internal processes to meet compliance is difficult and requires a good governance model which includes policies, procedures, training, and awareness. These aren't the most exciting aspects of cybersecurity, but they're the fundamentals that are needed to make sure you have an effective program. At KPMG, we help clients navigate through these challenges and many more. Learn more at kpmg.com slash U.S. slash federal cyber. 
Welcome back to our discussion, the intersection of cybersecurity and intelligent automation, sponsored by KPMG here on Federal News Radio 1500 AM, federalnewsradio.com. My guests today are Leo Scanlon, the Senior Advisor for Healthcare and Public Sector Cybersecurity in the CIO Office of Health and Human Services, Dr. Ray Latier, the Chief of the Cybersecurity Division at the United States Marine Corps, and Tony Hubbard, Principal at KPMG. I'm your host, Tom Temin. And before the break, we were talking about the executive order from the Trump administration that took up many of the themes, frankly, that were from the Obama administration, mm -hmm. uh, which I guess is easy to, to deal with uh, for federal agencies and, and contractors. But Ray, you were saying it expanded the definition of what we consider an IT system. Let's mm -hmm. elaborate on that a little bit more because I think it gets us into the next whole yeah, round good, good here. Good point. The, the, the executive order took a lot of things that had been, had been kicked around for quite some time, actually, uh, not even back into the Bush administration, but we just could not get people to move out on it. And so we've had this undercurrent for the longest time. How am I going to take and measure? How am I going to take a report? Uh, how far up does reporting go? So putting this, uh, putting this together has now given us some pretty uh, in, intensive tasks and goals. The one thing I noticed as I was looking through the constructs of how to do actual measures and how to take and do the reports, and I have to report as the accreditor what were the risk decisions I made and why, there was one part that jumped out at me was the definition of information technology. For the longest time in Title 40, Title 44, it had a very specific uh, definition. It kind of sounded like your office automation system. It's things that you would process information and send, send data, and it was pretty much what we thought was going to be in the business office. There was a subtle difference in that terms of operational technology been out in the industry with the industrial control systems and SCADA and health systems actually had a different definition that actually related to uh, providing a physical function or causing a physical reaction, uh, an opening and a closing of a switch. That uh, showed that there were two fields. In some cases, we'd see people that would just kind of ignore the, uh, the OT, focus on the IT. The executive order changed that. It said IT uh, definition now includes these, uh, these physical functions. I think what they're trying to do is, uh, which in my opinion we should have done 20, 30 years ago, was get to the point where if it's hardware, software, firmware, an application, IP address, you know, some, start documenting it. If the control is three or two or three of them, document it and that's starting to pull it together. Uh, there's been a lot of discussions now in the Marine Corps and in the DOD of where we're going to go on this and how is it going to be measured as it ties into the automation part that we're talking about that I know that we're doing. Uh, some of the tools we're working with the network access control device that we've selected as part of our uh, NACR program, uh, uh, the network access control compliance reporting tool, um, it will uh, it will actually work with these uh, uh, these devices. So now I have a way to actually start reaching down into the uh, to the ICS and SCADA parts per what the executive order wants me to do to kind of monitor it track it, identify it, put some type of approval process mm -hmm. on us and say, yep, I've seen it, I know what it's doing, and give them authorization. So this really brings almost the idea of the Internet of Things into the Absolutely. umbrella Absolutely, absolutely, because we had, as I said, it was always been a lexicon discussion. Uh, but when I was first into this job, first working as a, as a contractor, I uh, was at a Navy organization, and I was doing an assessment on a submarine. And then on the back of the submarine, they had a thing called a towed array. It's a real long antenna right. with a bulb on it. But it connects into, at the time, a Unix system. It was a keyboard, it had hard drive, it had a screen, it even had a printer on the side. And I said, well, we probably need to look at this and include this. And they went, no, no, that, that, that's, that's, not, that's not an information system. That's part of our uh, weapon system. That's our measurement system. So the lexicon of people trying to take in color something else to avoid doing the work, I think is now getting taken away. Uh, for people like me, it's going to be a little bit more work. But I think if we approach it smartly and, 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 and calm people's minds, we're not going to have you do you know, the 7,000 controls or 750 or whatever they have. There are certain aspects of controls that you only have to focus on. There are inherited aspects, too, in the environment that they're in. So let's take credit for that as well. That may cause the fear factor to go down, but, but like everything in government, there's a documentation aspect of this. Mm -hmm. And that's why we use a, a kind of enterprise uh, governance and, and risk compliance tool as the repository where this stuff will go in an automated fashion, get ported up to us, and we can expose that to the DOD, we can expose it to other agencies as they need to. It, it's going to be a lot of work, but I, you know, from the Marine Corps' perspective, I think we're farther along than what we expected when we saw the DO. Okay, and uh, Leo at HHS, we've been talking about CMS, but there are other big parts of, of uh, HHS that do operate 
medical systems. They're hospitals. They're right here locally. Yes, and we have uh, the Indian Health Service, which is the third largest uh, health providing uh, system in the country and uh, very, very underfunded and, and struggling uh, to meet what most of the sector is, to figure out how do we incorporate this definition, redefinition of IT devices, very important, because it applies to medical devices just as well. And in fact, in most environments, medical devices have not been considered IT up until now. They're not even run by the CIO or the IT shop in a, in a hospital or practice. They're considered a syringe, a Band-Aid, a pacemaker. It's Almost a device. A copier uh, or a fax machine well, is often facilitated. Ironically, we've sort IT. of figured out that copiers are IT machines <laughs> after people walked down. away with yeah. the disk drives and a couple of embarrassing incidents. Right. But, uh, but definitely the medical devices, um, this is a very big challenge. Uh, programmatically and, and organizationally to, to incorporate them into that. The other part of the EO, though, that I did want to mention, which I think is very important, is that it, it clearly identifies that the responsibility for cybersecurity in a federal agency is with the agency head. This is a very simple um, thing. You would say, well, isn't that obvious? Well, it actually isn't until you get a clearly stated rule that tells everybody, now here's the deal. And we've got that in the EO, and I think it's going to give us a, a great leg up. It's going to give agency um, heads, incoming new political heads of agencies, clear guidance that lets them understand this is the job. And th that's going to be very big. It's going to help move all of the initiatives that we're talking about forward uh, and accelerate them in, in a very important way. All right, and uh, Tony, again, across government, uh, do you see the whole SCADA and Internet of Things uh, domain coming into the CIO and cybersecurity domain? Well, certainly from an executive board perspective, I was also encouraged. Well, f first off, I want to um, follow what Leo mentioned around the uh, the accountability issue. Just as a, as a dovetail, uh, last year KPMG did a survey with ISC Squared of senior government executives, and one of the common themes that came out of that survey was the lack of accountability around cybersecurity agencies. And I think that's been a lingering issue, and I think the fact that it was highlighted, as Leo mentioned, in the executive order is, is very positive. But I think, to your point around industrial control systems, we've already talked a little bit about that, and I think that because that is such a, a critical concern, and the fact that the executive order specifically called out energy and defense as two critical infrastructure elements, and, and, and I guess now election systems as well, uh, is going to get more attention. But I think that's positive because that's, you've seen so many global scale attacks, uh, notably in other countries, on energy and power grids, and I think that's certainly a concern that we have uh, as well. So I think the focus there was really good. And we talked earlier about the focus on the cloud, and I think that the, the impact or the uh, the focus of the executive order on modernization and movement to cloud and standardization I think is good, but of course that's going to bring up some of the issues we talked about earlier around uh, third-party risks and how you manage that from a cyber perspective. So I think overall, consistent with the, with the same themes that Ray and, and uh, Leo mentioned, you know, follow-on, the executive order is really a follow-on of, of other themes that have been out there for a while, but I think any of that, for those of us that work in the cybersecurity industry, I think any of those kind of key themes that continue to resonate or is a positive. Mm -hmm. Okay, so building toward this idea of the need for greater automation, there's another component in here uh, that we are going to talk about now, and that is tools and the many tools, and you've heard every CIO say, I've got more tools than I can shake a stick at. Mm -hmm. So tell us about the tool sets, you know, in generic terms that you are using, that you are finding useful, and more importantly, how they interact with one another, and what, what the governance structures in place are for selection of the tools used to monitor and otherwise control cybersecurity? Well, for, for the Marine Corps, uh, we have an approach where uh, we, we try to do an evaluation of what is the cybersecurity capability that I need to uh, need to execute. Um, and, and we know those uh, related a lot of times to, of course, the controls and the CNSS 1253 or, or the uh, 853 controls. I've got to be able to do this aspect for auditing. I have to do this part for uh, individual access. From there, I have to take and, and derive what functionalities do I need to execute to, to do that. And then, and only then, do I start looking at tools. To do it the other way, and this, what, this does happen a lot with a lot of federal organizations, they get what I call the shiny object syndrome issue, um, or the, uh, the silver spoon from, um, uh, from Alice in Wonderland with the, you know, the mad hair, is that they get focused on that one thing, mm -hmm. and they're realizing they're trying to make it fit back into, well, I'll, I'll make it fit to a requirement. We've got to do the other, other way around. So we have been doing this capability aspect first and trying to find if we have certain tools that maybe does 80% of it, 
and I have another tool that maybe I'll do 20% of it, I can put them both together to justify mm -hmm. if I have one that does 50 and 50. So it's not necessarily always a single tool. You know, one thing does not always you know, solve all problems, but it gives me more justification that I can start reducing the number of similar tools and similar capabilities to something that's a little bit more manageable. It's not a Swiss Army knife per se, but it is a tool belt construct and allows me to kind of select what I've got. Uh, you, you ab absolutely, you know, we're looking at the end devices. Uh, how do I take and monitor what is the status of the end device? I think our com uh, the DOD's Comply to Connect and Marine Corps' NACR implementation of that is going to help us to do that. Now I can look at the end devices. How's the information going to be ported up? Do I send data up to say, here's my independent report? Or rather, do I expose the status in a web capability, so now you can see it. I'm not pushing something across the line, so I'm reducing you know, transmission problems. I'm, I'm reducing issues of extra storage. So we're looking at, at that particular aspect. Uh, we have, as I said, an enterprise governance and risk compliance tool, which is our central repository. This works with our our, our SIEM products, uh, with our, our um, provider at the uh, Marine Corps uh, Cyber Operations Group at, at, at Quantico. So we can say, here's where we can start to expose it. Here's where the, we can start to do some analysis. Uh, we have our, our, um, our major center, our um, Marine Corps Enterprise uh, uh, data center out of Kansas City, uh, where that's where a lot of the repository is going into that in big data environment, uh, where our application development and um, uh, operations construct will go will go there as we start trying to move things away from hardware, software, firmware, and get into the software applications, which really are what we're looking at, and see so if we can get off of the, again the various different tools. Um, so in this approach, we're trying to be as innovative as we possibly can. You know, I, I heard Leo talk a couple times about the funding shortfalls. Believe me, we understand funding shortfalls too, because for the longest time, you know, it's been it's been really tight. We just got a little bit, a little bit of a windfall in the DoD, and we're trying to find ways. How can we do that and and still meet contractual laws? That's been another issue on this too. Is that our agility in contracts to respond to something new? It it, it it it's really hard. And when you have his issues of 27 year old updates for your, I mean that's industry standard, right? It gets as hard as how do we take and manage for that? How we how do we plan for that? How do I adjust for it? My generals told me, find a way to track Internet of Things. Find the tools that will do it. Find the way to expose it. Find the way to take and make sure that they're protected in some way. And find a way to have that tr transparent up to him, to Marfor Cyber, and now ultimately to the agency head for us, which is the Commandant. Okay, and Leo, and on the civilian side, what does the tool situation look like and Very the data that it produces? What Ray was describing, <coughs> we, we are, I'd like the last point he made, we've been operating almost 10 years now with no real budget. Mm -hmm. That is, we're going CR to CR to CR, which makes planning extremely difficult, especially when you're talking about the speed with which technology is moving. It's very easy to get caught <coughs> with a bunch of shelfware just because you don't have the flexibility to respond to it mm -hmm. in, in a way that you would want to. So we have a secondary challenge uh, related to that at HHS, which is the federated nature of the organization and different risk tolerances for different organizations. So the National Institutes of Health is in the business of making data available to the public, to researchers globally. They have a different calibration of what they want to be going out and flowing out and how fast than say CMS, which is protecting financial and other information, uh, patient information, PII, PHI, where they have no tolerance for stuff leaving their network. This puts a tool challenge in place. What tool do you use to protect the data in those different circumstances. And uh, as you've noted, the typical problem is shelfware builds up and then what do you do? So we've taken an approach of looking at our infrastructure and we did an enterprise-wide view of what do we need that would support an array of tools appropriate to different business missions. And the key elements really are the, the uh, risk compliance uh, tool that Ray mentioned, number one, this is the, this is the mm -hmm the place where information is aggregated, viewed, and turned into risk state view for senior managers. But under that, we've got a common data aggregation environment, mm -hmm. and we have two different but related uh, threat detection environments that extend across the enterprise <coughs> and allow us then to, uh, to build something that we're, we've just instantiated, which is a, a healthcare cybersecurity communications integration center modeled on the DHS National Cybersecurity Communications Integration Center where we are able to take the threat information that <coughs> we're pulling off that infrastructure plus the data that's available from the tools and then turn that into uh, actionable uh, 
uh, material that can be used back by our operating divisions and by our partners. We, for example, we share with the DOD um, through DHA and VA. We, mm -hmm. we, we have a sharing environment to share these threat indicators. So we've used the, the infrastructure to put in place the ability to share data and we're not so fixated on the tool above that. We're really concentrating on what is the data and can we turn that into actionable information, threat information that can go back out to such things, the automated information sharing program that the DHS is running that we're participating in as is other federal agencies. So this is how we're, we're taking that challenge. We're looking for the infrastructure, the data flow, and then we're treating the tools as something that can plug and play. Mm -hmm. We're not gonna get tied to them. And we've asked our infrastructure mm -hmm. partners to be part of this vision. We joke that we pull them together and it's the five families. Mm -hmm. And we say, you guys are gonna work together with this vision. And that's been very, very successful for us so far and we hope that it's gonna set us up for uh, success in the future. All right, so you're meeting in Washington instead of upstate New York on this particular get together. My guests today are Tony Hubbard, principal at KPMG. Dr. Ray Latier is the chief of the cybersecurity division at the United States Marine Corps. Leo Scanlon is senior advisor for healthcare and public health sector cybersecurity in the office of the CIO at Health and Human Services. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. Our discussion is the intersection of cybersecurity and intelligent automation. Sponsored by KPMG here on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. Hi, I'm Tony Hubbard, KPMG's Federal Cybersecurity Practice Lead. We recognize that the federal cybersecurity requirements can be overwhelming, and tracking these requirements while augmenting internal processes to meet compliance is difficult and requires a good governance model, which includes policies, procedures, training, and awareness. These aren't the most exciting aspects of cybersecurity, but they're the fundamentals that are needed to make sure you have an effective program. At KPMG, we help clients navigate through these challenges and many more. Learn more at kpmg.com slash U.S. slash federal cyber. Welcome back to our panel discussion, the intersection of cybersecurity and intelligent automation, sponsored by KPMG, here on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. My guests today are Leo Scanlon, Senior Advisor for Healthcare and Public Health Sector Cybersecurity in the Office of the CIO at Health and Human Services. Dr. Ray Latier is Chief of the Cybersecurity Division at the U.S. Marine Corps, and Tony Hubbard is Principal at KPMG. I'm your host, Tom Temin. And in this segment, why don't we go into a little bit of the, uh, of the idea of how you automate and orchestrate all of these different components. There's tools, there's data, there is information from that data about things happening, and then sometimes something happens bad, and then you've got to orchestrate a whole string of responses to that. And so, Tony, why don't we start with you on uh, what you see across government that way and what are some of the best practices, maybe even bringing in the, uh, the commercial side, too. Sure. So, so automation from a cyber perspective, I think, is getting, a, is getting a lot of attention now, but it's not necessarily a new concept. I mean, all of us that do online banking, when we fumble finger our password and we have to you know, log back in and get a new account, we can do a lot of that in an automated way. So there's kind of bots operating behind the scenes to help with that. But obviously, with the reduced cost of some of these capabilities and more widely ad ad more wide adoption of them, they're becoming, becoming more prevalent. But I think one of the, and, and, there's, and there's numerous elements from a cyber perspective in terms of uh, reviewing access lists, who has access to systems and making that more automated, reviewing audit trail data. I know one of the banes of our cyber world is, is audit data, it's just capturing so much data. So having automated routines to review that data, identify risks and, and follow up on those risks. So there's numerous benefits to automating. I think one of the concerns though is the perception that if we're going to automate this task or automate that task that we've solved the problem. And I think that unfortunately even as recently as the WannaCry uh, issue proved that wasn't the case. Uh, you know, you could automate all these, these processes but if somebody in your organization receives an email with a link and clicks on that link, next thing you know you have malware in your environment and you're vulnerable. And there's unfortunately not too many technologies that are going to help with that. Uh, Leo alluded to earlier, dual factor authentication, which is certainly a great move to prevent some of that. But those, I, I think that is a key theme that that just making sure that even though you're going to move to automation and have more tools and capabilities that you're still grounded in having that foundation of sometimes not the most exciting elements of cybersecurity, but policies and procedures, training and awareness are certainly uh, important. And having those, those, those foundational blocks in place uh, almost 
every study will show that more and more vulnerabilities and the most common cause of all the vulnerabilities we're seeing are phishing attacks, where as I mentioned earlier, somebody receives an email, clicks on it, and then we have a, an, an issue in the environment. So, so you can't tighten down the nut behind the keyboard, basically. I mean, the, the, as much as we would all certainly like to automate things, there's still going to be the human factor to it. And that as long as you have that human factor, there's still going to be some of these other elements that just can't totally be automated. Now, a lot of agencies ask the question, and we've heard this many times, that, okay, so your tools are automated, and they assess the data, and they issue an alert, and then someone does something. So the next question becomes, that person that does something, can that be automated, and therefore you just get a report on this happened? A lot of agencies are not comfortable with that idea of, mm -hmm. of having the human intervention out of the picture until everything is fixed or patched or repelled or whatever the case might be. So what are you seeing there, again, generally, and what are some of the best practices on that question? I, I, from a best practice perspective, I think, it, again, it comes down to, to the basics. Having, I know we all get tired of walking around the halls and seeing security awareness training campaigns and posters and things like that, but there's numerous studies that have shown that, that those types of things work. Uh, I, I'm a big believer and want to exercise to test some of those, those elements is social engineering, where you will do an exercise to in, impersonate a help desk technician to call somebody up to try to get a password. And when we've done those studies going back 10 years, it used to be that 99.9% .9 of the time you would get a password. And now oftentimes you're not. So I think there is, there's evidence showing that the training and awareness and just the, those fundamental aspects do uh, reap benefits, but I think but you have to stay with the, it. in of the enterprise response to, say, a cyber attack, mm -hmm. where people would initiate a bunch of steps to repel that attack or mitigate for it, can that be automated upon the issuance of, of an alert from your tool monitoring? Mm -hmm. Or, uh, I mean, that's, that's where I think people are uncomfortable. Yeah, no, and I think, but I think that's where we're going. I think we alluded to it earlier. In, in the federal government, when you start automating techniques, it's not necessarily, in the commercial side, when you start automating some of these activities, you're doing it more maybe from a cost or a profit motive. You're, you're trying to do more with less. But in the federal environment, it's more, let's take these limited resources from here, automate some of these techniques you're talking about, and then we can deploy our resources into more advanced uh, research and analysis of an intrusion attempt, things like okay, that. So, yeah, Leo, you're, you look like you're reacting to that idea. Yeah, it's a very interesting and challenging one because um, we've learned, and, and others have, at the top of the at the top of the capability chain, there are uh, promises that artificial intelligence will be able to start mm -hmm. to answer the kinds of questions you're asking. Right. The real fact is, though, that the environments are so complex that an automated response to a particular threat might not be the, the thing you need to do across your entire environment. So how do you distinguish that? And we've learned, even though the, the new tools that we've got and the automated alerting, which is a very important major step forward, does not give us the ability, the intelligence, to then decide how to act. That is being done by humans. Mm -hmm. So I mentioned our HKIC center. Its purpose is to put threat analysts together, sitting on a floor, looking at their screens from our different operating divisions, from different organizations. They can look at something and say, hey, what do you know about that? Oh, I know this. Did you see this before? Yes, we've seen. And out of that process, human discussion, mm -hmm. comes an assessment of the threat that can then define an action. So we've kind of, it sounds like we've taken a step backwards to put the human back in the loop, but we're actually doing it at a higher level, mm -hmm. utilizing mm -hmm. these tools but we've learned at the end of the day, it's threat analytics, it's humans talking to humans, it's analysts sharing with each other that is building the defenses against these high-speed um, attacks and the advanced persistent threat, the presence that is there and you don't know it, the, the other half of the thing. That's hard to automate against, very tough to detect. We, we've got an initiative underway. We're working with, a, with the NHI SAC. It's a very exciting thing. To, uh, to work on the MITRE ATT&CK framework, which is a detailed analysis of how to detect advanced presence on your network, mm -hmm. sort of a map of the genome. Mm -hmm. And there's been a voluntary alliance of major corporations, HHS, uh, FFRDCs like MITRE, mm -hmm. uh, participating to develop tools that would take those frameworks and then develop usable queries that humans can run against their network. So this is research work mm -hmm. that the sector is working on, on a, again, on a voluntary basis to make this stuff available because this is where the future is of using this data. We've got the data. We have almost too much of the data at this point. Now we need to be able to analyze it and get at it and then turn it into actionable intelligence. You know, we're doing the same thing in, in the DOD as we looked at that same kill chain construct. Um, and it's been uh, a focus for between uh, 
uh, various agencies within the in the DOD is how can we take a look at that entire attack chain, uh, the impacts that go across that, that uh, the steps, if you will, to a uh, uh, successful movement uh, across that. We're categorizing those as to what particular uh, choke point can we get to right away. Uh, because we've, we've looked at this, the, the kill chain construct, and we said we can't do everything. We can't hit every single aspect on every single level. Uh, it's just going to be it's going to be too expensive. But uh, a lot of our um, aspects of this are, what I talk about comply to connect, is a compliance response. Now, many of us said earlier, you know, we were talking about it, we're thinking just compliance first. Mm-hmm. Um, and when people get caught in a checklist aspect of compliancy, they don't get into the actual analysis of what they're compliant with, what the compliancy gives them. But we still have to have start someplace with the baseline. So we state in the Marine Corps is that we are going to be compliant. That's what NACR will push us to be is to compliant at that point and keep us compliant. So if something unusual comes in, like the wanna cry aspect, it will be something that should have been patched in, in March. Well, then it's going to get pushed in patch. It's going to get remediated. It's going to, the, uh, the virtual system may be taken down and a new one put up right away. So it is almost like whack-a-mole in, in some cases, but we're trying to speed, speed that part up. Uh, we do have to be um, careful of removing the humans out of the, out of the environment because the humans, though the problem, and you know, I keep telling them, don't click the link, uh, but when the OPM issue happened and then we started getting push-outs from the DOD of the saying, oh look, we've got something for you, the, the individuals that sent the contract to the Senate did not digitally sign it. I had hundreds of my users going, I'm not accepting that. Mm-hmm. And they were calling and reporting. So the training, the uh, the uh, exposure to this actually worked. Uh, it it right. forced the DOD right. to change the things to get signatures on it. So there's benefits of what we're trying to do. I don't think we're ever going to get to total automation. I think so you always have the people to do it. The idea of automation, but not really total autonomy. Total autonomy, exactly. exactly. You have to have somebody there that's going <clears> to <throat> drive where it's supposed to go and do the analysis and say, is that important for us to do or not? I don't want to turn off this particular system because there's an operation going on right now. And I think one of the other key themes around that too is while all its automation is great having bots that are doing all these wonderful things is the, the security around the bot itself mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, rather than just releasing things and you know go, having a, the bot process go through the standard development life cycle that we would with any other application mm-hmm. or software. I mean Twitter unfortunately found this out last year with the Tay mm-hmm. uh, bot that basically went viral and, and it was hacked and, and, and all kinds of bad things <laughs> happened from that perspective. Uh, so I think that's important to, you know we just can't be releasing these bots without some type of rigor and governance that we talked about earlier. And uh, we should also explore a little bit further, we talked about how Internet of Things complicates the whole picture, and we didn't quite fully uh, delve into, and let's do that now in the few minutes we have left, for how cloud and Mm -hmm. substantiations Mm -hmm. of virtual machines all over the place, Mm -hmm. including maybe the tools we use to monitor, how that complicates the whole idea of what it is we're monitoring and how we automate it when it's not our own hardware, software, some cases also, uh, do we have insight into what the tools uh, are, are being used by the provider? Will those providers share those with us uh, on, a, on a continuous basis to our uh, uh, network uh, uh, organizations like McCaug and Marine Corps and such? You know, we still have to work through that on the commercial porch, which why we in the Marine Corps, are still, st- we're still doing private cloud right now. We have to work this out within ourselves. Um, and we're discovering also, too, of uh, where is the boundaries? Uh, what type of... Um, uh, security review tools do I have? Uh, is it at a virtual level? Is it in the rack which is hosting the virtual systems? You know, where is that got to go and, and what type of information can I get from that? Um, as I said, we're also automating, uh, looking to automate our applications, an application development test environment, constant re- reiteration re- review before it even gets pushed out. You know, trying to push that, uh, if you will, the security building of the applications to the left. But that means now as I push something out into the, into the wild, into the environment, even to a commercial uh, location, if I find something wrong with the application, I have mm-hmm. to quickly rebuild it, how can I be sure I'm going to get that other version updated and replaced? Sure. When I have control myself, I kind of have the ability, but when I don't know that in, into the other cloud providers, that there's, a, there's an aspect of um, the unknown that does kind of bother us a little bit. And Leo, you're probably more into the commercial cloud mix right. with your own data centers. <coughs> right. We um, we have a, a fairly aggressive move into the cloud across HHS, but more interesting is the fact that we are in the forefront of authorizing the FedRAMP environments that are used. And the authorization process of FedRAMP mm-hmm. is to allow one agency or entity to uh, authorize an environment, and then that authorization can be leveraged by others to save people the mm-hmm. cost of going through all of this work. But at the same time, it's posing an interesting challenge. 
On-premises systems, we have a great deal of control over. We have a lot of monitoring. We also control the identities. We have a strong uh, authentication system, as I mentioned, two-factor, which is bound to an assured identity that we, we check very carefully for all access to government systems. When you start putting your data in the cloud, you don't have that assurance over the provider. The provider is a commercial provider, and the cost of that provider doing what we are doing inside the government could very easily wipe out the savings that we're getting from the technological advantages of the cloud. So we're in a delicate balancing act now of how do we manage <coughs> this trust relationship that exists with as we move into the cloud computing environment. So HHS has been very uh, sure. actively involved in this and uh, we, we're talking to a lot of people about what we think those problems are and where we should go. Okay, and Tony, last question to you. We have about 60 seconds and that is uh, how do you bake all of this into the service level agreements? Oh, uh, yes, service level agreements yeah, are, are essential, and I think what we've, all of us have probably had experiences yep. where we've gone in and seen a compromise or a vulnerability, we'll ask for your service level agreements, and you kind of get mm -hmm. wide-eyed, look, well, what's that? And, and that, that's certainly a challenge, and that's where really it all starts, is having that service level agreement in place with the provider, making sure that you don't just accept their standard contracts and agreements, that you actually can negotiate that to make sure that your protections are in place for your environment, specific to your environment, and that's, that's essential. And just pulling on that SLA thread, I mean, recently the GAO issued one of its many reports that few agencies are really getting all of the service level agreement provisions they need to into cloud contracts. Mm -hmm. And so that's probably true where it comes to cybersecurity in the cloud and the automation and the whole attestation deal going on there. Can you tell us about uh, what, what are some good ways to make sure your SLAs are working for you right. as a federal agency? Yeah, certainly, the SLAs, as, as I mentioned, is a critical part of the process, uh, but making sure that, well, two things, making sure that you don't uh, just agree to the, the SLA that the vendor provides you. Uh, you need to have some negotiation in there because again, ultimately when your data is going into the cloud or into that provider's environment, it's still your data. So you have to have ownership of that data and have control over that data. So you're certainly, uh, you, you need to be vested in making sure you're getting your particular requirements into the contracts and the service level agreement. But the second part of that's important is having some type of attestation around the controls and processes that that third party is operating on your behalf. So making sure that the third party itself has appropriate security controls and contingency plans and things like that. I want to thank today's guests. They are Leo Scanlon, Senior Advisor for Healthcare and Public Health Sector Cybersecurity in the CIO Office of Health and Human Services. Dr. Ray Latier is the Chief of the Cybersecurity Division at the United States Marine Corps. And Tony Hubbard, Principal at KPMG. I'm Tom Temin, Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. For more on this discussion, visit federalnewsradio.com. Use the search term KPMG. Thank you for listening to the intersection of cybersecurity and intelligent automation panel sponsored by KPMG on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. The entire discussion can be found on demand at federalnewsradio.com slash KPMG.